Motorsport is often dismissed as a trivial, environmentally harmful spectacle reserved only for a few. At the end of the day, it's just a bunch of cars going around in circles, right? Not even close. It's so much more. I see it as one of the world's fastest research and development labs. And that's why in 2020, I joined Lewis Hamilton and his race team, Team X44. X44 is a new kind of racing team, a team that is going to change the world for the better. Named after the number I started racing with as a kid, X44 will enter the first season of Extreme E in early 2021. I started off as a junior engineer, and then I went to performance engineer, and now a race engineer, where I'm responsible for most of the engineering duties on the car. The role for me is really about how can we help the drivers push the car to its absolute limits, that often concerns me looking at things such as the suspension, the tires, the power delivery system in the car. In our second year, we won the championship by 0.6 seconds, so attention to detail is very important. I'm George Maffedon, and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Today, we'll be speaking about the future of motorsport. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Jai Campbell-Brennan. He's a director of Wavy Dynamics, a motorsport and automotive engineering consultancy. The important skills are just being able to think on your feet, being able to understand the problem, figure out what tasks you need to do to make it happen, just being creative and innovative in your approach. Also joining the discussion is Kit Chapman, an academic at Falmouth University and an award-winning science journalist. Motorsport gives you that fast, impassioned, can we scale it down knowledge that you would otherwise not have. It saves us time in terms of discovering things. Kit is the author of Racing Green, How Motorsport Science Can Save the World. AI and driverless cars are going to be so important going forward and it's something that we're already starting to experiment with. And this uses technology from Formula One We'll be discussing why you don't need to be a Formula One fan to really appreciate engineering featured on the racetrack and how some of the technological advancements have reached unexpected places in our day-to-day life and where you might just be seeing them soon. To kick off the conversation, Kit began by sharing how his lifelong passion for motorsports and Formula One actually began. I grew up watching uh, Prost, Senna, Mansell, um, my favourite was actually Ricardo Patrese, who doesn't get a shout-out at all, ever. Um, but a uh, huge motorsport fan. And one of the moments that sort of defined my childhood, if you like, was the death of Ayrton Senna in 1994, uh, which was just such a huge moment. But I've always been interested in how our world connects with science and how every little thing can actually feed into the, the wider loop of our lives. And so motorsport is one of those areas that people think it's just people going around in circles on a track. Um, and it's horrible and polluting, and, and why are we doing this? I see it as the world's fastest R&D lab. I see the research, the engineering expertise that goes into finding a tenth of a second or a hundredth of a second, um, the focus that you see in Formula One teams, and how that focus is transferred out already into our lives fascinates me, and so I wrote a book about it. I absolutely love that, and super keen to get stuck into so much of what you spoke about. We've also got Jai with us here in the studio, and we've known each other for some time now. Uh, a motorsport engineer at uni, you loved engineering, always wanted to understand how things work. Yeah, today I'm working as a motorsport engineer. I 
realized that I really enjoy understanding how things work. Then I joined that with a passion for fast cars. Along the line at university, I realized that automotive engineering is um, a really interesting engineering discipline because to make uh, an effective car, you have to understand such a broad range of scientific disciplines from chemistry, ergonomics. You've got to understand friction, combustion, aerodynamics. Moving into motorsport, which is what I'm doing more recently, is a form of competitive engineering, as Kit said. So it's, it's uh, a great place for innovation. Um, it's a place where great engineering is rewarded very quickly and um, it brings an element of teamwork where organisation and leadership, all those kind of things come in. It's a really exciting place to work. I mean, you both spoke about engineering in some aspect and from your book, Kit, I actually learnt that engineering comes from the Latin and it means cleverness. Yeah, same root as ingenious. Yeah, exactly, right? Which is which is amazing. I didn't know that. You would think it comes from engines. Um, many engineers are spoken about in your book and everyone describes how rewarding it can be to see their work in practice. Well, I think that's one of the fascinating things about motorsports. So when I was talking to various engineers, at, you know, McLaren, Williams, everyone emphasised that the reason that they go into motorsport is that when they make a design change, they can see it on the track in a couple of weeks. If they were designing a fighter jet, they might see it once in their lifetime. And they probably wouldn't even be able to see it because the government would shut them down and they couldn't see the whole thing. So being able to actually see your work rewarded and see that change is something that's so important to engineers. And every engineer wants to be the best. Every engineer I've ever met wants to come up with the smartest idea, cleverest little hack, the little twist they can put on something to improve it. And so it's that constant thirst for, for using your intelligence, using your wits, using all kinds of different knowledge that you might not even have directly from motorsport. It might just be something from your lives. And you can think, hey, I could use that in this way. That creative spark is something that I think is just so through engineering as a whole, but of course manifests itself in motorsport so well. Couldn't agree more. And, and, and Jai, I guess... You come at it from a vehicle dynamics and aerodynamics point of view in terms of taking innovation or creativity and, you know, bringing it out on track. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what those things are, first of all. Aerodynamics is, I guess, the more widely known one. I just kind of see it as, in a, in a motorsport context at least, is just manipulating the air to get what you need from it. And in motorsport, we want downforce. If you imagine a plane wing, it's turned upside down and you're pushing the car into the ground and you want to minimise the drag you get whilst you're making that downforce. So aerodynamics, so it's just a beautiful discipline. You can see airflow in a lab if you, you put some smoke in it. There are other methods of doing that. It's just very, very tangible. Vehicle dynamics is, I guess, equally important, but that's just around how does the car react when a driver... Uh, makes a control input, so presses the accelerator or presses the brake, turns the steering wheel. What does the car do? How quickly does it do it? That ultimately at its core is just an application of physics. There's an area of physics called classical mechanics and that features very heavily in vehicle dynamics. So it's forces and moments, and Newton's laws and things like that. Those are my two passions and, and what I, uh, I'm lucky enough to work in. A lot of the things we learnt in school, but never always paid attention um, to see it all through. But it shows how important these things can actually be. And I think you spoke about the example of the McLaren wing mirror um, in terms of reducing noise. And again, that is also through aerodynamics as well, right? It was the McLaren 12C. They were having some wind noise at high speed coming from the wing mirrors. The engineers were 
finding it quite difficult to figure out an elegant way of solving that problem. I think it might have been the chief designer who was Frank Stevenson. And he looked to nature, I think maybe he was a fishing fan. There's a fish called the marlin and there's a, some very small bumps that it has where its tail joins its tail fin. Those uh, on the fish act to reduce drag because it's a very fast swimming fish. And they applied that to the wing mirror and solved the problem. Biomimicry is just the science of looking to nature's engineering solutions, which in my experience are always the best for a specific problem, looking to nature to solve our human problems. No, I, I absolutely love it. And, and when you go down to the molecular level, I mean, my background is a chemist, right? And when you go and tr see if we can actually copy nature, we still can't do it. Even with all of our skills and all of our tools, you look at something like rubber, for example, which is basically just a long string of, of carbon atoms with some bits on the side. We can't even get all of the bits on the right side uh, when we try and make it. But if we use natural rubber and we're already looking at alternatives for tires, we can just take inspiration from nature and we use nature. And I think there's a reason that we've now gone back to starting to use more natural products in things like Formula One, for example. You're now allowed to use parts from hemp and bamboo, and we are seeing certainly McLaren already adopting some of those techniques in their cars. In this discussion, we want to also show how motorsports goes further than one might initially think and how it's relevant to every single person listening today. So perhaps we'll throw it back to you, Kit. You've written a lot about how these innovations have a home outside of motorsports. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Aerodynamics is probably the, the best way to focus because everyone thinks of aerodynamics when they look at a Formula One car. That's just the, the key thing. It's so important that you get that, that downforce to the point that a Formula One car could probably drive upside down along a tunnel and not fall off which is just phenomenal. We've used things called computational fluid dynamics, which is basically computer modeling of airflow. And so we can use that to design all kinds of different things. And if you think about it, all you're doing on a computer is you can scale up and you can scale down. So you can do something as, as small as a car, you can do something as big as a skyscraper. And we've already started doing that. So using the techniques we've learned from Formula One, we've started to design buildings that can aerate themselves so you have that natural airflow and you don't have to use air conditioning, for example. Apple have used that technique with, uh, with Worth Engineering from way back in the day, Formula One. And uh, they use that in Cupertino, California, in their buildings. They, we use it in, in London. And if you want to see it in your own lives, just go to a supermarket. So if you think about the freezer unit of a supermarket where the airflow is coming down, it comes down from the top of the freezer and it cascades over the shelves goes back into the unit and gets recouped. And that airflow is messy because it's hitting the shells, it's bouncing off. It's like a natural waterfall. You get that foam, it scatters everywhere. You get a bit of a splash effect. What we want, ideally, is for it to be like uh, an artificial fountain. So there's that nice, smooth curve and bend. And that means that you're not using as much energy because you want to keep the freezer unit running efficiently. And also you're not getting cold feet. We have used technology from Formula One cars, the air blades technology, to guide the cold air as it hits the shelves. And if you go into a freezer unit now in any supermarket, one of those reaching things where you get your sandwiches, the airflow curves back and you'll notice blades on the end of each of those uh, shelving units. That is designed for Formula One to curve the air back into the freezer unit so you don't get cold feet, you're using less power, and that means a better environment for everyone. So on a normal shopping trip, even Formula One is influencing that. So my journey to Morrison's, I'll be looking out for that, I can assure you. 
we can use computational fluid dynamics to map out how rainfall uh, hits the pavement so we can actually have better drains and people might have noticed that the number of huge puddles are slowly reducing around the world it's because we're working out how rainfall is hitting the ground and we can just get it off, off from our feet but it's not just aerodynamics where we're seeing these changes we're seeing updates that are happening not just from formula one all kinds of different sports formula e extreme e all of the information we're gathering from those motorsports all of the different things we're doing, taking cars into rugged terrain, for example, how can we improve battery life? And once we've learned that technique, because we're connected, the world is now a part of a giant connected system. We can take that update, that knowledge, and we can download it into every single car and gain extra miles for our electric cars. That means they're now viable technologies, so we can move away from uh, internal combustion engines, which are quite polluting and not very good. We can use techniques from Formula One to prove safety, to make sure that people can actually survive car crashes. We can use it to understand how cars can talk to each other in the future so that we can start getting driverless technologies as well. There are so many different aspects and it's not just about cars, it spirals out into every aspect of our daily lives. I notice as well, a lot of the Formula One companies are starting to see the business in exporting the expertise and the technology and everything that they gain while racing into other sectors. You know, Red Bull have Red Bull Advanced Technologies. You've got Sauber Engineering, Williams Advanced Engineering, of course. They make our batteries for Extreme E. McLaren Applied Technologies, Ferrari, have got their own division as well. I mean, everyone's expanding into it. Yeah, as a young engineering business owner, that's something that I've wanted to model as well. It's, I find it very inspiring. Motorsport is full of these different projects and high pressure and limited time frames, which is what brings about so much of these solutions that we have because they have to essentially test it out in the following week. We've kind of seen you, Jai, work on the design um, side and really go into that process to support companies essentially in designing different things. And what kind of skill sets would you say engineers and transferable skills are there for them to develop? The important skills are just being able to think on your feet. If you're working on new engineering, there's not necessarily a blueprint. So being able to understand a problem, figure out what tasks you need to do to make it happen. Just being creative and innovative in your approach. Tenacity, because the answer doesn't immediately reveal itself a lot of the time. So you have to be resilient, persistent. Towards the end of last year, I was um, asked to do a, a project which was more art-based, actually. It was taking a, a statue of a Kiwi. So th this was um, with McLaren Racing, uh, like a sponsorship activation. So it was taking a, a small wood sculpture of a Kiwi, and my task was to make it eight foot tall. Sorry, do you mean the, the fruit or the bird? Because The, the bird, the bird. <laughs> yeah, it took me a while to work, that, work out the connection too, but Bruce McLaren is from New Zealand, right? And the Kiwi bird is the national bird. Not something that I work on a daily basis, but it quickly emerged that the same skill set of, all right, what is it I've got to do? How am I going to do it? Working out logistics. And I like to say, just develop the situation. To me, that means... You've got a goal, you don't quite know how to get there, but the first thing you need to do is just take one step in the right direction or any direction at first, really. Reassess the landscape from where you are after that first step. Take your second step, reassess again, and just develop the situation. If you do that, you'll become clear on what you need to do to, to make the goal happen, whether that's a project, a life goal. It's amazing. You've even got some life advice in engineering. There's so much to learn. I would also say important for engineers to have confidence in yourself. Because when I was approached with that project, which I'd never done before, my first thought was, oh, wow, okay, 
how am I going to do that? But you figure it out on the way a lot of the time. And engineers are behind so much of these great feats. But often what I've learned anyway is great engineering is rarely celebrated. There can be a great invention, but it's often functional. Whether it's the Elizabeth line that I just came on today, nobody's speaking about the engineers that made that. You're just happy with the air conditioning and happy you can get from A to B. If anything, you want to get there a minute quicker. And they'll try and do that too, but they're probably not going to be celebrated. So much of what we see is um, has engineers behind it, right? Yeah, we're just the silent heroes. Silent heroes, I love that one. And Kit, on the topic of silent heroes, you wrote much of your book, if not all of it, during the period of COVID. And we know that engineers, and particularly those from Mercedes, and I knew them very well because they actually used our facilities at UCL and they adapted some of their processes in order to actually solve issues during the COVID crisis. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that case study. This is a fantastic example of how engineers can take the skills that they've got, that, that ability to think outside the box, the ability to work incredibly hard and, and deliver results very, very quickly and translate it into any kind of area. So I'm sure people will remember March 2020 was, was not a good time, to put it mildly. We knew that the pandemic was going to about to hit the UK. Uh, it was going to hit in a couple of weeks. And we did not have the number of ventilators that we would need to save people's lives. The government were getting them from the set of Holby City because they needed more ventilators. But uh, a team at UCL uh, were looking at this, Tim Baker and Rebecca Shipley sort of leading the charge in this. They were approached to be part of the ventilator challenge to make more ventilators. And they said, actually, is that really what we want? What we really want is a CPAP machine. Now, a CPAP machine isn't a ventilator. A ventilator, you put someone, a tube down someone's throat, they're on it for a month. It requires a nurse to run it. It's very uh, labor intensive. It's a horrible thing to be on as well. A CPAP machine, people use that to overcome snoring quite often. The best way to think of it is a little mechanical device. If you ever try to blow up a balloon, you know, you give that first puff just kind of to help the balloon inflate. Well, the CPAP machine delivers that first puff for your lungs. So that's all it does but it was saving people's lives. And we were already seeing that in Italy and China. So the UCL team decided to try and make more CPAP machines. They found a very simple one in a museum, believe it or not, down the road. And they thought, who can we call that would be able to turn these around, make medically safe, and going through medical sort of safety procedures and rigors is incredibly complicated. It takes like three years normally just to go through this entire process. How can we do that in a couple of weeks? Um, well, Tim Baker, he calls up Mercedes AMG um, high-performance powertrains. And that's not just for the Mercedes team. The, the powertrains go for several other different teams as well. Called a, a friend there, uh, Ben Hodgkinson, who said, he put it up to his boss. And the boss said, do not hesitate to call upon the full might of what we can do. He took three engineers. They hopped on the train. They didn't have a change of clothes. They got down to London. And 100 hours later, they had a working prototype that they could actually use in hospitals. Within two weeks, it was cleared through the MHRA, which is the, the UK Medicines Regulatory Agency. It was approved for use, these CPAP machines. And then they set to work building them. They transformed the Mercedes factory into a medical factory, making these devices. And we produced 10,000 of them. They're now used around the world. A whole host of different countries have got licenses for them. And they save lives every day. And that is what an engineer can do. 
when I read about that story and I'm a UCL graduate, so I, I read that one with a lot of pride. And Dr. Tim Baker was, you know, one of my lecturers and, and supported me when I was doing Formula Student as well. So it was very close to home and it just showed what, you know, engineers can do um, should they choose to be humanitarians in the process as well. That's why I've always called myself as a humanitarian engineer, because I feel like there's so much we can take from all these amazing industries that we work in and make a difference on people's lives. And that's what engineers are there to do. Even if we want to help things go faster, that is a big part of it as well, so we can apply it. There's so many amazing innovations, but there's challenges as well. So maybe we can speak about that within the industry. And Jai, you can you know, start first. Your experience of wanting to pivot from the automotive side into motorsport, you know, you've had to do a lot of things in order to try and work through that trajectory and you're still pushing through now. And what are some of those challenges? When I graduated 10 years ago now, I first started working in the automotive industry. I always felt that was a great place to learn the industry, learn engineering processes and just be in an engineering environment. So it was a great start, but the automotive world is very budget conscious when you're making a million of something. Every penny counts and very risk averse, so there's not really much chance to innovate. Not where I started anyway. I wanted to move into motorsport. I identified there were certain areas of expertise or certain disciplines which I have interest in, as, as we were saying, vehicle dynamics, aerodynamics. So I left the automotive industry and started looking for work in motorsport. What I first found is that to a lot of the employers in motorsport, you're only as good as your CV. Having spent, I think it was about five years at that point in the automotive space, I was working in powertrain design. So now I'm applying for these aerodynamics jobs and vehicle dynamics jobs because I didn't have previous experience in motorsport and vehicle dynamics and aerodynamics. I was running into a lot of barriers. Even trying to find ways to prove I knew and prove the research and self-development I was doing to make sure I could be productive in those fields. It was still very difficult. It's a small industry and some of that is because if you don't have good engineers, mm. you start losing races. So mm. there's a lot of risk aversion in that sense. But I think uh, that also makes you miss out on a lot of great talent. Something to be improved on. And, and in some ways, that's why... You created Wavy Dynamics and maybe if you exactly. didn't create Wavy Dynamics, maybe we wouldn't be speaking today in this way. So that is um, also, you know, brought an opportunity for yourself that's allowed you to work in many yeah. different places. I always put that down as um, like I'm stubborn. If I set my mind to something, I'll figure it out. My attitude then was like, OK, well, if they're not going to give me the opportunities, then I'm going to have to create them for myself. And that's when I started uh, down the road as a consultant and building up my company Wavy Dynamics to serve as a vehicle to allow me to work in my passions and, and make contributions to engineering and the sport and, yeah, enjoy myself. And Kit, through your journey of being a lifelong motorsport fan as well, you would have seen there's elements of sometimes motorsport feeling like an old boys club or, or so. And through your conversations, what have you kind of seen in terms of some of the challenges and how we can overcome them? It absolutely is an old boys club. There's there's no getting around it. Um, and if you think about motorsport as the pyramid, this is obviously the pinnacle of the pyramid, mm. but it's not an easy thing to get into. Even if you are someone who has connections in the industry, even if you're someone who spent years working on aerodynamics, it's still very, very difficult to get into. And that's something we really need to work on. 
the issue is money talks. And you see that in all aspects of this particular sport. It's something we need to work on. When you look at the 20 drivers on the grid, the best drivers in the world, some of them are without question, you know, don't get me wrong. I think Lewis Hamilton is probably the greatest driver that we've ever had. I would um, agree, yeah. but I'm biased. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Huge Lewis fan. But we don't know about all the untapped talent we've never seen. We've got to remember as well that this sport is predominantly based in Western Europe. Mm. There might be a kid over in Malaysia or a kid in South Africa who just hasn't had the opportunity to demonstrate what they can do. We need to work on diversity, absolutely, in the sport as well. The fact that we haven't had a female racing driver for decades now mm. I think that there are drivers, Jeremy Chadwick is the one that jumps out to me, yeah. who could absolutely make it in Formula 1 if given the chance. So there's so much work that we need to do. And part of it is making sure that people are aware that the sport is for everyone. And that being a Formula 1 engineer isn't this unattainable goal that you will never be able to reach. That it's something that you can work towards. So how do we create those pathways? How do we inspire kids to say, hey, you can do engineering at school? How do we show people that you can do the maths, you can do the physics, you can understand this, and you can get to that goal? Part of it is is already happening. We're seeing more projects sort of inspiring kids and making sure that the next generation can see themselves reflected in those engineers. But we still have a long way to go. I agree. And the Hamilton Commission was a good piece of work that was created back in 2020 is when the research partnership started with the Royal Academy of Engineering in order to increased representation within STEM and motorsport. And that has made great strides um, ever since in terms of the implementation with the Mission 44 charity, which Lewis Hamilton is a, a big advocate for, is his foundation at the moment. So yeah, very excited for what the rest of the future of motorsport looks like, even if it might not be drivers in the car just yet, because that can be very expensive, but we can make a lot of headway in terms of them being in the paddock and supporting these amazing innovations that are yet to come and yet to be discovered. Absolutely. And we are seeing, when we're looking at the, the, the pyramid of motorsport racing, obviously it's not just Formula One. The W Series is a racing program for women. And so uh, it's female drivers doing phenomenal jobs. And as I mentioned, Jamie Chadwick just head and shoulders above the competition. We've got W Series now and in Extreme E, for example, there is one man, one woman on the teams. So exactly. we are seeing that parity coming about and it's going to take a long time. I think it was really telling that um, I was at an event last year and someone asked someone from W Series, if W Series still exists in 10 years, is that a success or a failure? Because ultimately we don't want a separate series for, for men and women. We want actually to bring things together. So how do we actually get to that parity? Part of it is obviously the work that Lewis Hamilton doing is just is just phenomenal. And I really hope that that continues and, and starts bringing forward new talent. I can't wait to see where we are in 10 years. And now we'll you know speak a little bit more about the future of the sport. What would you say is the most exciting elements about the industry that you're looking forward to seeing and the impact that you think that they could make on the wider world? Where do you think we can kind of make a bit of a, a bigger difference? And maybe we can start with Jai. I've got another project that I'm working on with a brilliant data scientist on machine learning and its uses in motorsport um, as a starting place, at least. Machine learning is effectively just using computing power to pull out and predict certain trends and, yeah, just predict things with historic data, which uh, is available. You can use it for a lot of things. Motorsport is using it in aerodynamics. 
the CFD, which Kit mentioned earlier, is very computationally intensive. So it takes a long time. You need very powerful computers. But applications of machine learning within that are reducing the time taken to predict the impact of changing the design of a specific component from hours to just seconds. And that's just using historic data. Machine learning seems like a bit of magic, but it's just coding at the end of the day. Algorithms is a word that most people are familiar with these days through social media and things, but it's just using a specific set of instructions to approach a problem. It's intuitive, really, once you get into it. I wouldn't call myself a data scientist, but I've, I'm learning. You take a sample of data, you use that within the machine learning model to, hmm. to train it and teach it how to reach those predictions. It gives you some outputs. I wouldn't say it's not complicated, but it's not as scary as it might seem. And on to you, Kit, in terms of what you see as exciting about the industry. I know one of the topics that you're interested about is driverless cars as well. There are two really exciting areas. One you've mentioned, which is AI, um, and the other one, which I'll just very quickly shout out, which is materials technology and graphene. And we're starting to see more uses of graphene. If you take graphite in a pencil, not very strong, obviously you can write with it. But if you've ever gone to school and you've rubbed out that, you've made it nice and smooth. If you had taken that and you'd stuck it under a microscope, you would have won the Nobel Prize. Because a guy did exactly that, Andrew Geem, up at the University of Manchester, and discovered he had a single atom thick net of chicken wire, if you like. Incredibly tough to break through and you could shape it. All kinds of things are going to come out with that. You could build an entire Formula One car from the electrics to the engine to the wheels, everything from graphene. So I'm really excited to see where that's going. But AI and, and driverless cars are going to be so important going forward. And it's something that we're already starting to experiment with. And this uses technology from Formula One. I mentioned the, the death of Ayrton Senna. One of the things that came out of that was that we didn't have uh, the black box recording of what happened inside the cockpit. Because at that time, the, the, the TV broadcast had to go via a helicopter and you couldn't actually have the bandwidth to use all the cameras. We've changed that now, and Formula One holds a patent which allows them to talk to cars through all kinds of noise, the metal barriers, the crowds, all that kind of stuff. That's perfect if you have AI driverless cars talking to each other in cities, right? So they can know where other cars are and they can make sure that you're safe. But using that kind of predictive models that we've just spoken about, we can do something even better. A driverless car can know where all the traffic lights are. And it can know that if it drops speed by one mile an hour or goes faster by two miles an hour, it can make sure you hit green every single time. You never have to stop at a red light again. Wouldn't that be the dream? Oh. Honestly, <laughs> the amount of times I've stopped at a red light whilst no other cars are passing through the junction. <laughs> yeah, and it syncs up. But this isn't just convenient for you and me. This isn't just the dream. Because you're not braking and then accelerating again, you're actually making the engine far more efficient. So you're not using as much energy. And that means that we can go even further on our journeys. I've never been so excited about driverless cars. I think you've sold it to me more than anything. It's, it's the little things. As long as they leave some cars which can be driven by us, driving is still fun in some places. Agreed, agreed. And, and from an environmental angle as well, uh, we spoke a little bit about tires essentially mm. and they're um, a bedrock of a lot of motorsport you have the soft tires medium tires hard tires could you explain why tire wear is such a big thing and what scale of that degradation might we kind of see in a, a single race and how does that all apply to the real world 
Size is actually a really interesting subject in motorsport. If you take Formula One, for example, the regulators to limit costs have um, put in certain barriers and what you can and can't do in an engineering point of view. That creates an environment where the tyre, which is the only part of the car in contact with the ground, that's a very important point. The tyre can become the difference between winning and losing. The tyre strategies and tyre compounds which are used during a race are, are really important to the outcome. And there are petroleum-derived products, so the, the synthetic rubbers that are used in tyres, are you get them from petroleum. There's a, a compound called carbon black, which again is a, derived from petroleum. Given the fact that you wear through so many during a race, I'm a big fan of endurance racing, racing such as the Le Mans 24 hour. If you imagine 20 times throughout the race, you might be changing four tires. So that's 80 tires per car, 60 cars at, at Le Mans. I forget the number. It's a lot of tires. And what do you do with them after? Um, there's a lot of energy being used to produce them um, and then a lot of energy to do something with them after. They're quite an opportunity to make a, a difference. And again, if you look at road cars, if you imagine how many car tires are worn through every day around the world, like it's a huge amount of, of material and that then is deposited somewhere. Some of the carbon black within the tires is then presented as particulate in our atmosphere, which is not good for our lungs. Mm. There's, I guess, a, a twofold impact in, in making a change there in terms of the environmental impact and the, the health impact. Without going too much into the science of tyres, they need to be a viscoelastic material. Rubber is the only material which we've identified as having the right properties. I've got no doubt there's going to be some innovations there as chemistry moves forward. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and Kit, maybe you could tell us what dandelions have to do with tyres and, and what is the link? Is, yeah, there, is there something we can one. do there? There is absolutely something if we can do there. So if you look at uh, where rubber comes from, originally rubber, the rubber tree comes from the Amazon, but the British, because that's what we used to do back then, we stole the entire industry from the Brazilians and we moved it over to Southeast Asia. So pretty much all of our rubber comes from Thailand and it comes from cloned trees, which is a real problem. One, people are clearing out rainforests to make rubber plantations. That's not good for the environment. Two, it's a clone, which means if one tree gets ill, all of the trees get ill. And three, it's coming from Thailand and you have to ship that rubber and those tyres all around the world to get to us, which has a massive carbon footprint because ships and things like that. So how do we actually localise rubber and how do we make it more effectively? There are two different shrubs that are being used at the moment. You can actually make rubber out of about a thousand different things, but there are two that are sort of really promising. And one is the Russian dandelion, Taraxacum coxigaz, if you want the Latin name for it. And it's got really deep roots. Now, if anyone has ever got a dandelion, snapped it in half as a kid, squeezed it, you've got a little white uh, sort of stuff coming out of the, the stem. Rubber. So how do we actually gather all that up? Uh, well, Continental in Germany are already starting to do this. They are farming dandelions and they are using it to make the tyres for Extreme E. We are already using dandelions for tyres. That's already happening. In America we're looking at a different shrub called Wahuli. It grows in the Chihuahua Desert in Mexico. We're already looking at how we can expand it into deserts in New Mexico and Arizona, places that aren't being used at the moment. And exactly the same principle, we can get rubber from this shrub. So if you think about it, we can localize rubber production for America. We can use it in the Southwest of America. We don't have to go from Thailand. And for Europe, dandelions grow pretty much everywhere. Dandelions grow down the verge of a road. So we could basically farm dandelions and localise rubber production and therefore minimise 
our, our impact on the environment. That's amazing. And any kind of last reflections when you look at the future of motorsport and or just areas in our everyday life that you would like to see influenced and, and see motorsport making a big difference? With the new developments in powertrains in engineering, I also noticed it's opened up a whole, a whole new field in controls engineering, which is bridging the gap between these electrical components, such as electrical motors and the way we're using the data from the car to influence what the, the electric motors and the battery system and all that kind of thing is doing. There's probably going to be some applications of that as the world around us becomes more automated. Perhaps it's you know another lab for developing control software approaches for control problems and robotics and things like that and machine learning. There's probably going to be some useful applications of that which come out of motorsport. Maybe whilst the hardware developments are going to continue, the software is an element which the platform of motorsport might develop some some real good advancements. And Kit, you see motorsport as the R&D lab for the world. So for you, what would be your hopes for the future in terms of where motorsport can influence the world? I'll leave you with two thoughts. The, the first is that when you're trying to tackle a problem, there are two ways to do it. You can either start gradually and slowly, or you can start as fast and as extreme as possible and then back down, right? And motorsport gives you that fast, impassioned, can we scale it down knowledge that you would otherwise not have. It saved us time in terms of discovering things. The second thought is that when we look at applied technology, there's always a reason, an application that you're trying to make. Engineers ultimately are doing things to solve a problem. And when you look at the real innovation in human history, throughout human history, it's come in two areas. It's either come in a war or it's come in sport. Now, I would much rather things come in sport than come in war. And that is why I love Formula One. What a great way to end. And I've been inspired by both of you and, and your contributions. Kit, Jai, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no, thank you for having us. Yeah, man, it's been a pleasure. I've been in the industry for over three years now, and so many of the things that they spoke about were so thought-provoking and I didn't even know about. And one thing that stood out for me was Kit when he was speaking about dandelion tires and how they could be made locally and potentially be used as an alternative to the tires that we've been using in motorsport for years. Another aspect I found fascinating was the aerodynamics and how that technology from motorsport has been taken from the track to our fridges and our local supermarkets and maximize the cooling in those fridges and take the efficiency up a level. And it just shows what motorsport can do when you really bring it to our day-to-day -day lives. One thing I'm excited to see develop is AI. And it's currently being used to improve the design of the cars and produce these intricate shapes that we could never imagine. So I'm excited to see where that can go next and how motorsports can continue to shape our future. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Cram. This episode was presented by me, Georgia Maffedon, and was produced by May Lee Evans. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists, and thinkers. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.